When it comes to weight management, we tend to focus on what we eat, but Noom's approach puts the focus on why we eat. That's a game changer. Noom uses science and personalization to help you manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up today. This podcast is sponsored by Underdog. Want to make money making picks on MLB games? Then you have to try Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to play fantasy sports. In Underdog's Pick'em game, you just pick your favorite baseball players and predict whether they will go higher or lower on stats like strikeouts, hits, and more. Pick to two to five players, get all your picks right, and you can win up to 20 times your money in a single night. Be sure to sign up with the promo code PITCHERLIST and Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100 so you have some bonus cash to start playing with. Again, that's UnderdogFantasy.com or Underdog Fantasy in the App Store. Sign up with promo code PITCHERLIST and get your first deposit doubled up to $100. Must be 18 year older, 19 year older in Alabama and Nebraska, 21 or older in Massachusetts and Arizona, and present in a state where Underdog Fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play? Call 1 800 Gambler or visit www.ncpgambling.org. In Arizona, call 1 800 Next Step. In New York, call 1 877 8 Hope and Y. In Tennessee, call 1 800 889 Welcome everyone to Long Ball Legacies, the show on the Pitcherless Podcast Network where we dive into the stories, myths, and legends and players who helped shape the game of baseball throughout its history across the world and the players who help make it the game we love and help make us love the game itself. I'm your host, Daniel Port. I'm very excited to have you all here today. I hope uh, this podcast episode finds you well. For today's episode, I know we've been doing probably for about, gosh, almost it feels like two or three months now, we've been doing kind of the big names. We've been really adding to and messing around with really the the big 10, the top top 20 players uh, on the list right now. And I wanted to take a step back and, I don't know, just take a break from that. It feels like those all like big high stakes. I want to start talking about some players that maybe we don't immediately think of or that we're not as aware of. And so I thought this would be a fun way to finish off my sort of players with a, with a chip uh, on their shoulder uh, sort of prototype, and then actually use this theme to transition to the next theme, which is these players that we don't think of right away, but also were actually way better than we thought they were. And, and looking back and going through there and, and being like, oh, this guy's actually a prime player for a decent chunk of their career. And so with that in mind, I wanted to talk about this week, maybe the the angriest player I've ever known, but maybe no bigger chip on their shoulder than Albert Bell. Now, to give some thought here, for those who don't know my background, I try to talk about it quite a bit, but for those who don't know, about two years ago, I got my master's in science in sports analytics and management. And my particular area of focus was on improving youth sports. And in all of my research on why kids quit sports and looking at all this, time and time again, the main thing that came up was that they would lose the love of the game because the pressure and the training becomes too much. That it essentially becomes work. And eventually they grow to hate the game, that they hate coming to practice. They resent the sacrifices they have to make and the way it changes their relationship with their family and their peers. 
one of my favorite quotes. There's a quote from Rafa Nadal in his memoir that I think sums it up perfectly. To, he says, to deny yourself necessary pleasures would be counterproductive. You'd end up feeling bitter, hating training, and even hating tennis, or becoming bored by it, which I know has happened to players who've taken the principle of professional self-denial too far. It is possible to do everything, I believe, but always keeping a balance, never ever losing track of what's important. In the exceptional circumstances, I might even skip morning training and train in the afternoon instead. What you can't do is make the exception the rule. You can train once in the afternoon, but not three afternoons running, because then training becomes secondary in your mind. It ceases to be the priority. And that's the beginning of the end. You might as well prepare for retirement. The condition of having fun is keeping the line, sticking to your training regimen. That is non-negotiable. And this is just something I thought about because I think this happens to a lot of kids. I, I think it can end up creating a lot of adults then, therefore, who even if they stick with the sport that they, they grew up playing, even if they end up finding success in sports, they end up with an unhealthy relationship with that sport. Sometimes it can be becoming overcompetitive. Sometimes it can be setting unrealistic expectations for themselves. And sometimes it can be becoming too much of a perfectionist and too much of a too high stakes of a player where everything hinges on every single moment of the sport. And when I originally thought of the concept of the angry player, the guys known for outbursts and aggressive behavior, feuding with the press and the fans, the first name that came to my mind was Bonds. As he represented the, the foil, so to say, to Griffey Jr., which I felt made for good sequential podcasting. But right after Bonds, the, the next player came to mind right away was today's subject, Albert Bell. And to really think about it, and as we go through this, I think you'll see a guy who was highly intelligent, was driven, and was pushed from childhood very hard on through life, and became almost too much of a perfectionist. There was too much of a had-to-perform-at-a-high-level sort of player. And really, the the most accurate way to describe Albert Bell, aside from being one of the most underrated hitters of the 90s, which he absolutely was, that he played angry in a way that oftentimes bordered on mean. Baseball wasn't about joy or wonder or happiness for Bell. It was about perfection and dominance. And this sort of feels into that player that it seems like Rafa's trying to talk about not becoming right now growing up in cleveland in the 90s i followed bell's career intensely being a big fan of his and the teams and while i don't know if i've ever seen a more feared hitter in cleveland maybe manny or tommy but like he was also the guy that my dad would tell me never to emulate when i was growing up and i obviously didn't understand it in the same way i did then but i knew that there was always something going on that People just kept saying, man, we're glad of Albert's performance, but we're always cautious of of the man himself. And we'll dive into uh, why as we go through Bell's career, you're going to see multiple issues and controversies. And then they really marred and changed Bell's time in the majors. It was surrounded by constant controversy. And some of it at times borderlined on going from inappropriate to scary at times he was known as a difficult man an incredibly difficult teammate to play with and that's what most people remember him for but that's also not all the man was it's not the only thing to know about albert Bell or define him by for probably about five to six years in the 90s there wasn't a more feared hitter in the game i you'll see it, the numbers he puts up are incredible for about a five to six year stretch it's they're just absolutely incredible and to put it in perspective, think of it this way. During his peak, which ran from 1992 to 1999, 
He averaged 40 home runs a season and hit fewer than 110 RBIs in just one of those seasons. Across 14 seasons in the league, he went to five All-Star games while accumulating 40 war with 381 home runs, which, by the way, is 73rd all-time and 13th all-time amongst left fielders, while his 933 OPS is 36th all-time and 9th amongst left fielders, while his 144 OPS plus is 59th all-time and is 14th amongst left fielders. He's the only player in baseball history to have 50 home runs and 50 doubles in a season. That's it. It's just him. And it's it just really is hard to describe how fearsome and how intimidating a hitter he was in his prime. If a degenerative hip injury hadn't cut his career short, there's a genuine possibility we're talking about Bell as an all-time great hitter. I'm thinking like kind of in that Fred McGriff, Willie Stargell, Mo Vaughn, or David Ortiz level hitters, if he could have just stayed healthy. Really just an incredible hitter. And he's both, historically speaking, the perfect example of how rigid discipline and high expectations at a young age can push you to greater heights, but also serves as the cautionary tale of how easily that life can push you over the edge. And just to demonstrate that, in fact, let's get into Bell's story and really dive into his career. But first, let's take a quick break, pay some bills, and then we'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Underdog. Want to make money making picks on MLB games? Then you have to try Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to play fantasy sports. In Underdog's Pick'em game, you just pick your favorite baseball players and predict whether they will go higher or lower on stats like strikeouts, hits, and more. Pick to two to five players, get all your picks right, and you can win up to 20 times your money in a single night. Be sure to sign up with the promo code PITCHERLIST and Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100 so you have some bonus cash to start playing with. Again, that's UnderdogFantasy.com or Underdog Fantasy in the App Store. Sign up with promo code PITCHERLIST and get your first deposit doubled up to $100. Must be 18 or older, 19 or older in Alabama and Nebraska, 21 or older in Massachusetts and Arizona, and present in a state where Underdog Fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.ncpgambling.org. In Arizona, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. In New York, call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY. In Tennessee, call 1-800-889-9789. Eat dinner and tackle homework. Dad would usually arrive home after a long practice with his high school team. Uh, and after talking to mom for a few minutes, he'd poke his head in our room, and that was our signal. My brother and I would immediately bounce up and jog out of the house to the local junior high school with dad driving behind us. Dad would throw us hundreds of balls all night long. So you get an idea of kind of just how baseball-focused and really how improvement-focused his young life was, which isn't always necessarily a bad thing, but as we've talked about, can become unbalanced. And... He was incredibly intelligent and well-rounded as a person. Uh, Bell would grow up to become both an All-State athlete and a National Honor Society member, and he attended college at Louisiana State University, where he'd play baseball and excel setting home run uh, records in home runs, total bases, and RBIs across the two years that he played there. Now, according to his Sabre profile by Tom uh, Wancho, I believe is how it's pronounced, this was the first time we also saw Bell's temper, which would haunt him his entire career. Apparently, a fan shouted racial slurs at Bell during the SEC tournament in 1987, and Bell attempted to run him down, obviously clearly with the intention of doing that man harm. Now, he appeared uh, apparently to have been tackled and restrained by his teammates and ended up being suspended by his coach for the College World Series. Now, I'm going to make a caveat here and uh, take this for what you will. In my opinion, shouting racial slurs at any player, let alone 
Albert Bell. I don't know if you've ever seen Albert Bell, but he's an enormous man who certainly basically walks and holds himself like he knows how to do, let's say, damage. <laughs> I would never mess with Albert Bell in any way, shape, or form. But that doesn't matter. You shouldn't say this to anyone. Really shouting these slurs at, at Albert Bell falls to me under the definition of F around and find out, if you know what I mean. And while I don't condone violence, uh, obviously, I think I've been pretty clear on that. Frankly, that person might have needed to have faced the consequences of their actions. If, uh, to kind of give a side note of this, uh, it's a feel about the malice in the palace. I don't know if you know the malice in the palace, but for those unfamiliar, I'm referring to when in 2004, Ron Artest and Jermaine O'Neal of the Indiana Pacers went into the stands after the, our test was hit with, if I remember correctly, it was a beer. It was either beer or soda that was thrown from the stands. He was laying on the announcer's table. There was a big brawl in the game, and he, to calm down, was laying on the announcer's table. And that's when he got hit in the face with a, I, I, like I said, I think it was a beer. It was either beer or soda. And he lost it. He goes into the stands, and Jermaine O'Neal goes with him and try and get that fan. And that's something but for better or worse, fight them. And it all gets broken up, and Artest and O'Neill are, are suspended for, God, a long time. And it was always painted in a way that I think rubbed me the wrong way. Um, like, I know for safety reasons, obviously, Artest and O'Neill are wrong. And it can't ever happen again. That is inexcusable. And they had to be punished. But we also let fans get away with far too much bad behavior in sports. And we say that they're not going to we're not going to impose the same level of consequences onto them. And it does create an environment which fans get to do things like shout racial slurs and throw beers at players and do things that are inappropriate without ever really having to pay the consequences of their actions in the same way that players do if they decide to, to, to stand up for themselves. Especially when you get to a place like something as loaded and rightfully so loaded as racial uh, slurs and things like that. Like I said, I, I I do feel like if we as fans aren't going to do better, sometimes I think it's okay to live by the F around and find out rule. Uh, and that's going to come up a lot because the fans and Bell have always had, even from this young of an age, a very fraught relationship with Bell. And it's hard to it's hard to look at. I mean, I think of my growing up where I, I looked at a lot of the actions that Bell had, and I, I definitely interpreted them. As, as bad as, as I said, my father told me not to, never to be like Albert Bell. And also a lot of what haunted Albert Bell in some ways was because of us. So it's hard to know that relationship and it's tough, but it will be a thing that really haunts Bell for his entire career. And this here was really the first inkling that there might be some storm clouds on the horizon in terms of how good Bell would be at controlling his temper. Despite all this, he's drafted in the second round of that same year by Cleveland. Despite that incident, uh, he heads straight to A-ball in, King, in Kinston, I believe, uh, for Cleveland. And he gets in 10 games where he hits 324 with a 1.066 OPS, three home runs, and nine RBIs. He spends the 1988 season back in A-ball, where across 50 games he hits 293 as a 21-year-old with nine home runs, 17 doubles, 41 RBIs, and 23 runs scored. This earns him a quick promotion to the Double A Akron in 1989, where he plays just 89 games, hitting 282 with 20 home runs, 20 doubles, and 69 RBIs before being promoted to the Major League Club to make his debut at just 22 years old. And he plays 62 games for Cleveland that year, and while he struggles in the batting average department, hitting just 225, he does manage seven home runs with eight doubles and four triples, along with 37 RBIs and 22 runs scored. 
there was certainly some things to 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 some bright spots there as a rookie and it's a fascinating time in Cleveland baseball history because at no point or I should say at this point no one is realizing that the Cleveland was on the cusp of building a future powerhouse that would become one of the most dominant teams of the 90s and it all starts here honestly with Bell making his debut uh, Cleveland had not been good for quite some time people have always asked me like major league the movie is like accurate was it the right choice to pick Cleveland as the team to feature in there and absolutely at this point in time and at the time when that movie was made yes they were not good and they had not been good for a while but that was all going to change really quick here now they win just 73 games that year so as I mentioned not very good and obviously there was no postseason for the young hitter but there was promise and people were starting to notice that now in 1990 Bell sees major life struggles due to struggles with alcoholism and Cleveland, to do, in an attempt to get him help, would send Bell to rehab at the Cleveland Clinic, and he would end up playing just, I think, like nine games that season. Now, prior to heading to rehab, Bell had gone by Joey, so he's Joey Bell. But once he emerged clean and sober, he started to go by his first name again and changed it to Albert heading into the 1991 season. He would play the entire season that year, uh, appearing in 123 games, and this was the, the first true breakout season for Bell. As he did 282 with an 863 OPS, which it's worth remembering the early 90s, while we think of the 90s as this offensive era, the early 90s were actually a dead period for offense. That 863 OPS was worth a 134 OPS plus to go along with 28 home runs, 31 doubles, 95 RBIs, and 60 runs scored. And he wasn't named to the All-Star game or anything on that season, even though uh, it was a pretty good argument to do. And it's certainly not a year without controversy for Bell. As in May of that year, he intentionally drilled a fan in the stands named Jeff Pilar with a hard-thrown baseball right to the chest. Now, did Pilar do something? Absolutely. According to reports, Pilar mockingly invited Bell to a keg party after the game, knowing that Bell had gone through rehab for alcohol. And, again, for me, this is a bit of Pilar after round and found out uh, in, in that sort of situation. Uh, and it's truly abhorrent behavior. I just can't imagine taunting someone with alcoholism that way. And Pilar even publicly claimed afterwards that he didn't think he did anything wrong, which doesn't paint him in the best light, kind of puts me a little bit on Bell's side here. But also, let's be real. If you're Bell, you just can't do this. You, you, you can't. You just can't. He could have hit a kid or someone who wasn't looking and, and done serious damage. Oh, you just can't do it. I get the anger and I get the frustration. And I think we've all lashed out at times when someone has done something that really hits a hits a sensitive spot or, or something along those lines. But again, what if he misses? It's just this is before we had nets and things like that. So it could have really hurt someone and, and, and someone who didn't do anything to him. Obviously, I say Pilar's behavior is abhorrent. Bell's actions are also inexcusable. Just can't, just can't. And it's something I want to mention, by the way. I know I can rag on fan bases like Boston or New York at times for bad behavior, but Cleveland has its fair share of bad behavior between this and several incidences with Bell. There's Chief Wahoo, Deshaun, everything we just saw happen with Deshaun Watson and the way fans reacted to that. Just so much more that really, frankly, as a Clevelander, as a Cleveland fan, I, I think really should cause us to do some self-evaluation and we, we just really do have to do better as fans but also it helps explain the reason i bring it up is it it helps explain a lot about bell's career about the way bell reacted to a lot of things and a lot of the instances that happened in bell's careers that 
And Cleveland fans just weren't exactly good to him either. There's a point where he's putting up perennial all-star games and taking Cleveland to World Series and World Series I? World Series Us? I don't know. Anyways. And we're, we're treating him pretty poorly. I don't want to paint all as if it was just Bell. The Cleveland fans are pretty bad in a lot of ways. And this is just a good example of that. Either way, Bell can't do it. Uh, there's no excuse. And the league hits him pretty hard. Suspending him for a week without pay, which is a pretty big penalty at the time. Now, he isn't named to the All-Star game. He does not win any awards that year. And while Cleveland still doesn't make the playoffs, it is already clear that if Bell can keep his anger under control, there's finally something that Cleveland can build around there in the Four City there. Now, heading into 1992, we saw some regression from Bell as he has just 260 with a 797 OPS, which is good for a 123 OPS plus to go along with 34 home runs, 112 RBIs, 23 doubles, and 81 runs scored across 153 games. It's still a perfectly fine season for a 25-year-old. And it's worth noting, for the rest of his career, Bell wouldn't have a single season with fewer than 100 RBIs and had just one season with fewer than 30 home runs from here on out. He receives a few MVP votes, despite being worth just two war that season. Now, why just two war? I just list off the offensive numbers. They're pretty good. The problem is... Bell, for his entire career, is largely held back from a war perspective because, by and large, he was a terrible defender out in left field for his entire career. Just was not built for it, was not great out there, and war reflects that. Even when I go through and be like, he's one of the most dominant hitters of the 1990s, and he only put up four war, I'm sorry, 40 war. This is why. He just was not a great fielder. In fact, across 12 seasons, he never finished with positive defensive war on the year in, in any given season. Just keep that in mind as I give the war numbers. This is a big part of that. Now, moving into 1993, you started to see the Cleveland offensive juggernaut start to come together. They had just acquired Kenny Lofton the year before, who would serve as their leadoff hitter for the next seven or eight years. And Manny Ramirez and Jim Tomei all made their major league debuts that year as well. So you're starting to see things all start to come together. And if 1991 was Bell's breakout year, this was the year Bell became a star and one of the most feared hitters of the 90s. He goes absolutely berserk at the plate. It's 290 with a 370 OBP and a 922 OPS, which was good for a 145 OPS plus to go along with 38 home runs, 36 doubles, a career-high 23 stolen bases. For the record, before I get too excited about that, in the interest of honesty, he was also caught stealing 12 times that season while, recorded, while scoring 93 runs, and leading the league in RBIs with 129 runs batted in. Now he makes his second consecutive All-Star game and finishes seventh in the MVP vote that year, which, you know, offensively, obviously, he deserved consideration. But he only was worth about four war that year, I believe. And, yeah, 4.7 war. And his finish was pretty generous, considering he was outside the top 10 in war in the AL that year. But it was a clear sign Bell was on the scene in a big way now unfortunately this still gosh he just it feels like he couldn't go a single year here without really striking up any kind of a a controversy or anything like that because he gets into another altercation with a fan this year in september of uh 1983 he gets into a fight in a bar with a fan who was named william kelly he actually apparently hit him twice in the face with a ping pong paddle, which might be the most humiliating way to get the snot kicked out of you in a bar. But apparently the way the story goes was Kelly was chanting 
the name Joey at Bell, who, as we mentioned, he so when he was in when he got, got a rehab, he changed his name to to Albert, and a large chunk of that was moving on from that period of his life, trying to trying to get past that, and so fans would often mock him with his with his first. With the, with the name Joey. And so apparently this guy was bothering him in the nightclub with it. And he lost his temper again. And again, unacceptable behavior. He, he can't... Like I said, I'm not going to claim William Kelly didn't, be, didn't deserve it. He, once again, effed around and he found out. And I don't know what would drive a fan to, to do this in the presence of Albert Bell. He's clearly made clear at this point that he's going to retaliate. Maybe that was the point. And there was certainly, I'm going to guess, probably some some race involved in racial issues involved in fans giving bell a hard time but again i try to i really try in this podcast to try and understand where this all is coming from and obviously it seems clear that this is that was a difficult period of bell's life one that left him pretty scarred based on his reactions to it and necessarily maybe one he never came to terms with in terms of how he feels about it and about himself because of it i don't know i don't know him but it seems clear that it was a sore spot with him. And I get that. I, under, I understand why that would be. And I don't understand why fans also wouldn't just leave it alone. But uh, that's because, you know, again, we need to improve our behavior with these sort of things. But Bell obviously can't do this either. It's literally against the law, right? <laughs> Freaking laws. Again, you probably deserved it, but you just can't do it. You just can't. So it was not without controversy. And... In 1993, again, we're starting to see the, the Cleveland team come to, to, to terms. They went 76 and 86 here. So, no, they weren't quite turning the corner yet as a team. But, again, we're starting to see the the pieces all there. So, they don't make the postseason that year. But we move into 1994, and Cleveland really starts taking off, and so does Bell has... An absolutely absurd year. It's 357 in 1994 with a 101 RBIs, 36 home runs, 35 doubles, 90 runs scored, a 438 OBP, and a 1.152 OPS, which was good for uh, a 194 OPS plus. We're talking one of the all-time great seasons. Just an incredible season. He leads the league in total bases with 294. He is an all-star again that year. He wins his second consecutive Silver Slugger. And he finishes third in MVP voting. And the truth is, that's probably about accurate. He was fourth in the league amongst hitters in war that year with 5.7 war. The, the war should have gone to Kenny Lofton, his teammate, who was incredible with 7.2 war to lead the AL that year. But unfortunately, he also would not get the votes needed to win. I believe it went to Frank Thomas that year, I want to say. And, yeah, Frank Thomas. And it's just hard to not believe, like I said, it should have gone to Lofton, but that Bell had an argument. But Thomas was incredible as well. Had him in war, had him beat by about 0.7 war. So it's not like highway robbery or anything like that. But it definitely was an all-time season from, from Albert uh, Bell that year. Now, there again, I love to talk about a season without controversy with Bell, but 1994 brings about one of the wildest things I've ever seen and one of the wildest things I've ever seen and experienced as a fan. So, 94, as we know, is the strike-shortened season. 
And it's such an interesting thing about, I think I've talked about this with other players, but think about that. It's 94. I'll read those numbers again. But if you think of, say, his home runs, he had 36, 35 doubles. He might have gotten on his way to having a 50-50 season in 94 if if they had gotten to play out the full season. So it's an interesting what if to say what could Bell have maybe pulled off that year if he had gotten a full season. But there's obviously no playoffs and no World Series that year, but it doesn't stop Bell from getting in trouble. And like I said, this is one of the craziest things I've ever, ever heard of. So in on July 15th, in a game against the White Sox, one of the officials confiscates his bat on suspicion that Bell was playing with a corked bat. Now, I didn't know this at the time as a fan. What, 94? I'm nine years old when this happens. I guess what had happened was the manager for Chicago, Gene Lamont, had received the suggestion that Bell that Bell had played with cork bats. And the truth is, he was playing with cork bats. He had played with them most of his career. He asked the umpires to check the bat for cork. So they confiscate one of the bats. And for those who don't know, the reason a cork bat is a problem is that essentially you fill it with cork so it can be lighter, but also it creates a little more flexibility. You can swing it faster, so therefore you can hit the ball a little higher further we all know nowadays in modern baseball how important bat speed is and he certainly wanted it certainly gives you an advantage as a hitter when it comes to hitting home runs or hitting for power now as the story goes this is where things get crazy the umpires take the bat and instead of frankly i I get there's probably a procedure that they have to go through whatever but instead of just like on the spot inspecting the bat which would seem to make some sense instead they literally i got this place this part's crazy they put it and lock it in a in the umpires room. There's like a room at every a stadium for the umpires, and so they lock it in there. And apparently, one of the pitchers for Cleveland, Jason Grimsley, <laughs> it's the only reason anyone knows who Jason Grimsley is, decides he's going to save the day. So he apparently crawls into the ductwork of, of the building, like it's a Mission Impossible movie. Goes through the ceiling and through the ceiling tiles. It, but for the record, by the way. They're not at home. This didn't happen in Cleveland. This is at Comiskey Park. Uh, he crawls through the, the ductworks and the ceiling tiles to try and swap the bats. Grimsley was quoted as having said, My heart was going a thousand miles an hour, and into the umpire's dressing room I went. I just rolled the dice a crapshoot. This is just what is going through his head at this point. So, according to Grimsley, he quickly dropped down. Uh, he says on like on top of a refrigerator from the ceiling and then to a counter he sees bell's bat and he swaps them the thing is it was he couldn't like swap i guess the reason it didn't really work obviously other than this isn't like a heist movie is that bell all bell's bats were corked he didn't like i think of remember when sammy sosa got busted for corked bats somewhere in the early 2000s the way the story goes is that he actually grabbed a batting practice bat and a lot of people s- substantiate that because he did have bats in his, oh, his little bat collection that weren't corked. And that was not the case for Bell. According, apparently, all of Bell's bats were corked. And and so because of that, when Grimsley went to switch their bats, he had to grab one from teammate Paul Sorrento. And they knew, they, were like, they looked at him and was like, they're different, right? And so uh, Bell gets caught. And is suspended for seven games. Originally was suspended for ten games, but it was uh, appealed down to seven. But at some point, 
I remember turning on the television, reading the newspaper, because we still read the newspaper back then. I would get up in the morning and read the sports section with my dad and just reading the story. It is the wildest thing I've ever heard as a fan is at some point, A, that someone Grimsley had to think he could get away with this. B, one of the things that surprises me the most is, and I'll give you some quotes later on, but no one seemed to like Albert Bell all that much. So it's shocking to me that Grimsley would take this risk for Bell. And then at some point, Grimsley thought that it would work. And then at some point that he actually then went and did it. (laughs) It's just, it's incredible. There's no other story in baseball like it. Is it a good one? No, obviously no. We shouldn't reward cheating or stealing or doing any of those things. But it is hilarious. It is genuinely funny. And one that you, even when someone tells you it, even when you read it from like reputable sources, you're like, are you like pulling my leg here? This is a joke, right? Like, I'm on candid camera. No, this really happened, and and Bell is suspended for it. Now, we turn around to the next year, and we get in 1995. And again, 95 was not as shortened by by a strike, by the strike like 94 was, but it still was, they only played like 140-something games that year. And in those 143 games they played, Bell is insane. He's so good this year. He hits 317 with a league-leading 690 slugging percentage and a 401 OBP, good for a 1.091 OPS, which is good for a 177 OPS+. plus. He hits 50 home runs and 52 doubles, which again, as I mentioned before, has never been done ever again. Only one player has ever hit for 50, 50 home runs and 50 doubles in a season, and it's Albert Bell. He led the league in both those categories. He also led the league in RBIs with 126. And he led the AL in runs with 121 runs scored. So just just an incredible season. He's an all-star and a silver slugger again. And he finishes second in the MVP voting that year. And this is controversial, this one. Um, I remember, gosh, I swear to God, I think Cleveland almost rioted over this because he loses to Mo Vaughn that year. And Vaughn, had, who was a DH, was worth only 4.3 war. That year, now he hit 39 home runs, which is a great season. He was tied with Bell for the league lead in RBIs with 126. He hit 300, which was less than Bell. He had a lower OVP, he had a lower slug, he had a lower OPS. He obviously didn't hit 52 doubles either. I've talked a lot with when you talk about Bonds or when we talk about Ted Williams about how there are sometimes their attitudes with the media and some of their wars with the media and the fans cost them accolades. This might be the ultimate example of that because he he feuded constantly with the media and with the fans and obviously had all these controversies and and the cork bat in in his past and all these different things. You just got to imagine they just didn't want to vote for him because this is a historic season. It's just an incredible season. Never happened again. And I'll give you this. He did not lead the league in war amongst hitters that year. Uh, John Valentine did at 8.3 where Bell was number two in the league at seven. But I'm mean, just, you got to side with history, right? 50-50, you win the MVP. Unless you've been so antagonistic to the media and to the fans that no one will vote for you. And that's firmly the way I look at it is Bell was a shoe-in for the MVP. He just was too much of a, frankly, it's probably too much of a jerk to get it. And that's hard. Now, Bell wasn't the only player to see success that year for the for Cleveland. 
and in fact the entire team was wildly successful going actually to this and really doing it in style uh, let me give you an idea of just how much they dominated that year they won 100 games which in and of itself is, is impressive but they uh, mind you they were 144 for the record because as we remember that the season was shortened who knows how many wins they would have they might have even pushed for the win record and if they could have gotten a full season but they're they went 144 and their 0.694 winning percentage, uh, which means they won almost 70% of their games, was at the time the highest regular season winning percentage in Major League Baseball since 1954. And, and I believe even as of now is the 12th highest regular season winning percentage in Major League Baseball history since 19, 1900. So an incredibly successful season. Uh, they were they won, they led the league in batting average and ERA. So they were a hitting powerhouse and a pitching powerhouse they won the AL Central that year by 30 games that's how good they were and and they it was really I'm 10 right this is I often credit this season as the season that made me love baseball I know a lot of people had a hard time coming off the strike but for me this was the the, the season that made me love baseball right as a 10 year old kid it, it was incredible I they had everything they come from behind victories I believe looking at the numbers of their 100 regular season victories, 48 of them were come from behind victories. They had 27 walk-off victories. Of those 27, eight of them were walk-off home runs. They won 13 of them in extra innings. Just just an incredible season. An absolutely incredible season. And they get in the playoffs and dominate as well. They sweep the Red Sox in the opening round of the playoffs. Bell is pretty darn solid. It's 273 uh, across the three games. With a home run and three RBIs and three runs scored. He has a 1.103 OPS in the series. Then they go in the ALCS against Seattle. Going up against Griffey and the surging Seattle team as well. And Bell does okay. He hits 222, which isn't great. But he does hit another home run with an RBI and a run. He has four hits in the series as they will overcome Seattle in five games there. To go to the World Series. And this is... Again, I cannot tell you how important this season was for me as a fan. It's one of my fondest memories in baseball. It just, it was awesome. And they they head into the World Series. And it's worth noting, I don't, if I remember correctly, at this point, they had not been to the World Series since 1947. It had been a long time for Cleveland, right? And this series was one of the most incredible series of baseball I've ever seen. It's wild to me about how Cleveland, while maligned as, oh, they've always had such bad luck, and they've had some heartbreak, trust me. But they've also been involved in three of the four craziest uh, World Series I've ever seen. It's just, it's really remarkable. And it's been a fun time as a fan. But this World Series is hotly contested. I believe they were saying that of the best of seven, the, the Braves will win in six games. But every single one of them was decided by less than uh, was decided by a run one run one way or the other so every game was incredibly tight the game six was actually a combined one hitter by the braves to win one nothing just it was really tense i remember being really tight it was really cool so i was uh it was just a neat thing and bell was was okay uh he had, i'll put it this way he had 235 which is not good but he also had a 458 OBP in the World Series with two home runs, four RBIs, and four runs scored. That's great. And he had 1.047 OPS in the series. His two home runs, one of them came in game four, and it was a big hit. 
But then his, his second home run came in a must-win Game 5 to avoid elimination. And it was just a huge home run for Cleveland. It was just a great series for him, for the team. And again, this is now when we knew, okay, this Cleveland team is for real. They're here to stay, and Bell is at the heart of it. And again, also, this is not without controversy. Because Bell can't go one single season without clashing in some way with either the league, the players, the, the media. He just can't do it. So it's worth noting, Bell gets himself in trouble here during, I guess it was during batting practice before Game 3. Bell, as we've mentioned, was a tireless worker who was a perfectionist. He, he had to play perfect at all times. And would get frustrated if he didn't. And we get frustrated with those who did, he felt stood in the way of him performing to the best of his abilities. And apparently he was getting annoyed by media members that were in the Indians dugout. This is, well, during batting practice, right? And according to, this is from NBC reporter Hannah Storm. Initially, he screamed at all the media to get out of the dugout in language that was horrible. Two or three men left. They were frightened. I was the only one who stayed because I wanted to do an interview with Kenny Lofton. And when I stayed, he directed his tirade at me. And again, this is, well, less violent than his previous incidences. It's inexcusable. Again, it's the World Series. The media is a huge part of all of that. And it's a huge part of being in the dugouts and doing all these things. And it's more than you get in most games. But it's the World Series. And you're on the national stage for the first time. It's, it is inexcusable behavior, especially towards a, especially towards a woman reporter who's already, we know it's tougher. And sometimes in that world, that the players can be pretty rough with uh, women reporters sometimes, and that this is inexcusable. And it was uh, threatening in every way. It felt like a lot of people, again, Storm mentioned that people left because they were frightened. You can't be doing that on the national stage. You just can't be doing it. You can't be doing it anywhere. And so this gets Bell in trouble. This is right before game three, right? And while he would eventually apologize to Storm right around game six, I do believe, you knew there were consequences coming for this, right? So now Major League Baseball didn't quite know what to do because he didn't really technically violate any any, any rules or any co code of conduct or anything like that for baseball, but it was also unacceptable. So th there had to be something done, and Bell felt that he shouldn't get in trouble. And Bell said that if that's what Bud Selig wants to do, I'll just tell him that's bull bleep. If I have to be suspended for trying to get back some batting space, that he, as commissioner, should have given us in the first place. And here's the thing. He's probably not wrong. If he wants that space, that's something players should get to do. If they want to warm up in peace, all for it. He just can't act that way. And that's the part that Bell's missing. Is that is not how you handle that in any way, shape, or form. Now, Selig obviously does not agree with him. And he he finds him either $10,000 or a 10-day suspension. Bell takes the fine instead of the suspension. But, and this was pretty controversial. I remember there was a lot of uproar about this, especially with the Players Union and with his agent Arn Tellum, it was not it was not great. And unfortunately, this was not the last incident of 1995 for Bell. Apparently, on Halloween night, some kids came to his neighborhood and egged his house, which again is not acceptable behavior. But kids will be kids. I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying, like the, you'll hear the reaction in a second here. Probably not not the proper reaction, which is apparently when they egged his house, he climbed into his car and 
chased them down. And that, that is unacceptable. He was convicted of reckless operation of a motor vehicle and fined $1,000. And of course, I remember this as well. It was plastered all over the news in Cleveland. It was a pretty big deal. And so it just he just couldn't go a year. He could barely go sometimes. It feels like six months without some kind of a controversy, without something being out of control. And it just you have to imagine, and you'll see this coming up, that this had to start wearing thin on the team. I know for a fact it was wearing thin on, on, on the fans. I, I remember the talk, and I remember, I mean, again, I was like 10, but I don't remember it like full on. But I just remember that no one talked nicely about Albert Bell. No one really was glad he was there and that's crazy considering he was putting up mvp type numbers from the uh, at the plate now we move into 1996 again we're coming off the world series it is an exciting year to be a cleveland fan and bell is awesome he hits let's see here he hits 311 with 48 home runs 38 doubles he leads the league with 148 rbis so again 148 rbis he scores 124 runs. He has a 623 slugging percentage and a 1.033 OPS, which is good for a 158 OPS plus. He's just awesome. This year he's an all-star again. He wins another silver slug. This is fourth in a row. He finishes third in MVP voting, which yeah, that that feels about right. Griffey won it that should have won it that year with a nine with 9.7 WAR. Who did win it that year? I want to say Juan Gonzalez. Oh, gosh, this is the Juan Gonzalez year. I always forget this. The Juan Gonzalez year sneaks up on me every time, I swear to God. When we're doing this time period, I'm always like, oh, who won the World Series that year? And it's always Juan Gonzalez. It always kills me because it, it's insane. He, because again, Gonzalez was worth just 3.8 war that year. Bell's worth 5.7, but Alex Rodriguez was worth 9.4, and Ken Griffey Jr. was worth 9.7. Okay. Anyways, Zobel is a good year. Uh, he probably shouldn't have finished that high in MVP voting again because just his fielding was not great. But he, you heard those offensive numbers. They're just incredible. So Bell finishes third in MVP voting, and the and Cleveland is again a powerhouse team this year. But I'd love to say that there was a year without controversy here, but that's not true. First, let's talk about in April when Bell, uh, upset at getting his picture taken by uh, Tony Tomsick, who is a photographer for the, for Sports Illustrated. So he's a professional photographer for a for a legitimate publication and all these things. He was apparently near the dugout. He was taking a picture. And uh, Bell did not like that he had taken his picture, especially because he had taken his picture while he was stretching. And so Bell throws a baseball at him and hits him in the hand. And whereas compared to the Pilar incident early on in his career, obviously there's no justification for this. This is insane. This is crazy behavior. And it's just unacceptable. Again, again, what if he misses? What if he hits someone else? What if any of these things, right? And at some point, I, I think this makes sense. According to Tom Sick, he said, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to make a big deal out of it, but when a player's on the field, He's fair game. And I think that makes sense. A lot of baseball players have been loved having their picture taken, things like that. That, And to give you an idea, he talks about, in, when he's interviewed about the incident, he talks about Eddie Murray, who will do an episode on Eddie Murray pretty soon here. I, it might even be our next episode because I love talking about Eddie Murray. He's fascinating to me. He didn't like getting his picture taken. What did he do when he didn't like getting his picture taken? He got his picture taken. He stepped out and asked him, hey, please don't take my picture. Tom said, okay. And... It's just like one of those things that, like, 
you can't you this can't be how you do this if you're bell and it sounds like it did not go over well with his teammates who were getting sick of tired of a lot of this they felt like cleveland felt like they handled it internally but with all these things at some point the league has to send a message right they suspend him and that was the only thing that he did that season so then we move into may late end of may and this is probably the incident, if you, as a casual baseball fan, know Albert Bell, you know him for this. <laughs> and this is when he trucks Fernando Vina. So we're fast-forwarding to May 31st. And basically what had happened was Bell was hit by uh, some pitches. And that kind of got him boiling. But what really was the thing that, that really set him on edge, that really, I think, got it started was... Early on in the game, as the report goes, he he was in a double play. He was on first, and the guy in front of him, the guy after him, hit no double play, and he stopped and forced Vini to come. To, Fernando Vini was the second baseman for the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, the team they're playing, to come tag him, and then they threw the first base. And apparently, the way the story goes, first base coach Davey Nelson berates Bell, gets on Bell's case for not forcing Vini at least to make a hard throw or do something different. Now, I, I get it. technically the way I was taught was. Bell did the right thing. You're supposed to stop, make Vina come tag you, and then make him complete the throw, right? That's the way I was always taught to do it. I don't think anyone was ever taught to do what Bell ends up doing. The next time this happens, so he comes up in the ninth, um, and he gets hit by a pitch, which, again, this already gets him fuming. Now he's already ticked, right? And apparently, <laughs> while he's on first, A. Murray comes up next and hits into a double play. Fernando Vina, doing his job, charges the ball and comes up to do exactly what he did the play before. So he comes up, he's going to grab it, tag it, throw it the first. And if you haven't seen this, don't, I obviously don't condone it, uh, but watch it. it. I've never seen anything like it in baseball, really. Vina goes to tag him and Bell just levels him with a forearm to the face, right? The base is a punch. He basically walks up and punches him in the face. It's crazy. I've never seen anything like it. And uh, just absolutely Dex Vina. And to Vina's credit, I'll give him all the credit in the world. I would have lost my mind if someone did this to me. I'm a pretty mild-mannered guy. I would have lost my mind. Vina just gets up. He says something, but he just gets up, doesn't retaliate, doesn't do anything. Says, you're out, obviously, and then uh, goes about his business. And I give him just all the credit in the world, because this is, again, this is just a crazy thing to do. Bell assaults him on the field. For no other reason than he was mad at at having gotten yelled at before in the game by his own coach. Vina didn't do anything. It's just the craziest part. Vina didn't do anything <laughs> to Bell. There's no evidence that they had been like jawing at each other. They had done something other than Vina was the unfortunate human being who had the ball. <laughs> uh, and that's just, this is where, this is the year where I kind of start getting into, as I've said, I've looked at several incidents in Bell's past and said, I get it. They fall into the category of the people who are antagonizing him after round and found out. And I get it. This is not that. This was just Bell being out of control and letting his anger get the best of him. He tried to send a message essentially to his coach by, by, by assaulting another man on the baseball field. It's, it's unacceptable. I remember this as a kid because this was the day I did not like Albert Bell. This is the day, like as a kid, I was just like, nah, I'm done with him. And I just, it, it's crazy that he did this. And it's crazy that they let him like 
in the league. He gets suspended for this, of course, because here's the problem. Then after that, he tells Julian Tavares, the pitcher for for the for the Cleveland team, to to essentially throw at the uh, the next at the first hitter for for the Brewers, who was Mike Matheny of all people. He throws behind Matheny. Matheny charges the mound, and a brawl comes out. Right, and so the, this game was just chaos, and it was all Bell's doing. Right, he sets it all up here, and again, as I mentioned, between between the Tomsic incident which again, he got suspended for. And this, like, the league just had, they had to start doing something. They, for, they Bud Selig actually uh, ordered Bell to go to anger management training. He, they suspended him basically twice that season. It was just, it was too much. It was just so overboard and, and uh, inexcusable. And, and it stinks because he has a, uh, as I mentioned, you, you heard the numbers, he had a great season. He had an MVP caliber season at the plate again. And it's just every single season, just something, something new. Now, Cleveland is great again that year. They win 99 games. They win the AL Central. They go to the playoffs and they face the Baltimore Orioles. This was the year of Brady Anderson's big breakout. It was just a big year for Baltimore. And they actually beat Cleveland in the the ALDS. Bell is... Good. He he only hits 200, but he hits two home runs in the series across four games with six RBIs, which is uh, incredible. Two runs scored. He's a 9.33 OPS in the series, so he was very good that year. But I wouldn't say because it feels like 20 uh, hindsight to say hindsight 2020 to say that I felt like the the writing was on the wall again. Now I'm 11, so I, I had no idea. But I do remember my sentiment, and I remember a lot of the sentiment of the people I knew around me was that. We were tired of all the all the Bell stuff, and we were tired of his antics. And it turns out, so was the team, because this was Bell's walk year. He was going to be a free agent at the end of the season, and despite all the numbers, despite how good Bell was, they decide to let him walk. Right, and it's rare to see a team let a player that good walk, unless. Unless they were just sick and tired of his stuff, of all the stuff he was doing. Now, he ends up signing a five-year, $55 million contract with the Chicago White Sox. So he goes across, not only, I remember this, <laughs> this also went crazy. Because not only did he not come back to Cleveland, but he signs with the arch rival of Cleveland. We've feuded with the White Sox earned my entire life. Now, this makes him the highest paid player in baseball. And well, this is his first new team in 10 years. But it was a little freeing. He didn't have some of the baggage and some of the the things that had happened. He had felt like Cleveland hadn't put enough of an effort to try and go back to the World Series before. He really felt that this was a chance to start over. And before we go into that, I just like, I said I would mention how his teammates really felt about playing with him. And there's a lot of like quotes that you start to see coming out. Omar Vizquel said at the time, I got tired of answering questions about him. He was in his own little world. He's a great player, but he didn't contribute to team chemistry, and team chemistry is important. The manager, Mike Hargrove, at the time said some of the things surrounding Albert were not good, but you take the go with the bad, which you expect a manager to say. Bud Black, who played uh, in Cleveland with him, nicknamed Bell Snapper for how often he would snap at people or would just like turn on people and sometimes violently turn on people. A coach at the time, Dave Nelson, said Albert snapped at me. He's gone off on other coaches. 
you you never know which Albert's going to show up. There was you know rumors of things that were basically what they a lot of what was said was about how he was so meticulous in his preparation and so just he, he set the standard for himself by that the you'd hear stories from going one for four or two for four in a game and he's in there throwing throwing food in the clubhouse and breaking plates and and it led to a lot of people wondering if there was there's a place where the production costs too much like could he be a coherent member of a team and especially when it you know started to come out a lot of teammates were worried about playing with them worried about their their safety or worried about at least the way that he would react to things and the way he would do things um, so then 1970 goes in place for the white Sox, right and in 1997, he's good. He's great. It doesn't miss a beat. It's 274 with 30 home runs, 45 doubles, 90 runs scored in 161 games with 116 RBIs. Now, it's a far cry from his previous output, obviously, but he's an all-star that year. He has an 823 OPS, which is good for a 116 OPS plus. He's obviously still one of the better hitters in the league at the time. He's just uh, it's a good season. It's a really solid season. And he hasn't getting any MVP votes, or, nor is he a silver slugger that year. But everyone's pretty happy with his performance in Chicago. But again, he cannot go a single year without causing some form of trouble. And so basically, the trouble he gets into here is, and this is maybe the most condemning Issues. First, he gets fined for making an obscene gesture. We all probably have an idea of what obscene gesture to fans in, in his first game back at Cleveland. But then the biggest one is six weeks later, he's uh, hit with a domestic battery charge after apparently hitting his girlfriend at the time, who's unnamed, and he pulled her phone supposedly off the wall. And later, apparently, all those charges were dropped. And in the magical world of how we cover sports, that usually just means it's fine, but. It's hard to ignore, uh, and so obviously 1997 is not any quieter for Bell, and the White Sox do not perform particularly well as a team. They win just 80 games. They finish second in the AL Central, which has got a sting as Cleveland would go on without Bell to the World Series again that year. It's not even necessarily like Bell was the, the secret sauce there at the time, or the only reason they were that good. And that definitely had to push Bell pretty hard. And he, he shows up in 1998 and makes good on that. He definitely shows to be refocused. He hits 328 with 49 home runs and 48 doubles. Again, nearly goes 50-50 again for the second time in his career. He uh, knocks in 152 runs with a 113 runs scored. He has 200 hits in the season uh, that year to go along with a 399 OBP. A league leading 655 slugging percentage and a 1.055 OPS to go along with a 172 OPS plus. He leads the league in total bases with 399. He surprisingly is not an all star that year, but he does win a Silver Slugger award and finishes eighth in the MVP voting that year thanks to his. Let's see how much war he had that year. In 1998, he had 7.1 war. A decently solid, impressive uh, war number there. He, he does rebound and astonishingly really goes for most of 1997 i'm sorry 1998 without controversy and that really honestly you'll go through and it's really actually the first year that he he does that 
and I think we talk sometimes like, oh, this is the only year this guy doesn't hit 300 or there's things like that that are remarkable. I feel like this is Bell going an entire year without causing controversy it was a big step for him. And that, so then the White Sox still, despite uh, Bell's performance, do not make the playoffs. Um, they win just, I believe, just 80 games again for the second year in a row. And it becomes clear that Bell wasn't the solution there. And so they also they end up trading him to the Baltimore Orioles. Now, so there was some controversy too, even not even controversy, but a big part of this trade was because Bell's contract said that they would always give him raises to keep him as uh, amongst baseball's top three played yeah top three paid players in the league, and the White Sox didn't want to pay that, and so they trade him to Baltimore. Bell gets extended to a five-year, sixty-five million dollar contract to keep him in that top three number. And Bell tries to turn over a new leaf here. He tries to get along with the media. He starts doing interviews for the first time. He starts really trying to connect with the fans. And he gets off to a bit of a slow start in 1999, which quickly brings back the old Albert Bell. And he again starts clashing with the media. And the weird part is, of course, in that way that anger-fueled Bell, he turns the season around and starts crushing the ball. He hits 297 on the season, the 541 slugging percentage of 400 OBP, a 941 OPS, which is good for a 143 OPS plus. He hits 37 home runs with 36 doubles and a, 100, a 108 runs scored and a 117 RBIs. He even steals 17 bases that season, which is uh, pretty remarkable. Uh, he's actually only caught stealing three times this it was starting to show another aspect of his game here. Really was played well for Baltimore, but again, was back to clashing with the media, even if there was no major controversy that happened that year. Baltimore, he's also not the answer there. In Baltimore that year, they also do not make the playoffs. And Bell's, again, on the outside looking in. We head into 2000. Now, heading into 2000, Bell runs into a problem in the post-Y2K. He had been fighting a a hip injury for, mo- for, for quite some time now, and it turns out that he had a uh, degenerative hip issue. And so he would struggle in 2000. He, he hit 281 uh, with a 342 OBP and a 474 slugging percentage, so he had an 817 OPS, which is good for a 109 OPS+. Plus. He hits 23 home runs with 103 RBIs and 71 runs scored. He has 157 hits. It's clear he's struggling. He plays in just 141 games. And at the end of the season, he decides to to call it a career. And he, he tries to come back and never really was able to play in 2001. And so that that's what kind of pushes him into retirement. So it's just 14 seasons. I mean, I'm sorry, 12 seasons. And... They're incredible. He is, when he's hitting, he's incredible, but it's so hard to, I know there are times where we ask the question a lot of, can we separate the man from the product? We do this in art all the time. We talk about this stuff all the time. And you just can't with Bell. Like, you just can't. It is impossible, especially once you throw in the domestic battery, which you know is a big sticking point for me. You You cannot separate the man from his actions. He's a complicated man. He was uh, 
known for being intelligent and knowing the game of baseball and being, and this is to come back full circle to that sort of theme from the beginning, he was known for his obsession with perfection and was constantly driving himself. I don't think he ever loved baseball. It doesn't seem to be the case. And I don't know if he created an unhealthy relationship with that sport and was succeeding in baseball as a child. And that's not to like condemn his parents or his upbringing. That, that is not what I mean at all. I just, I do think sometimes that you can be too much of a perfectionist, especially if you then lack the ability to, to have a healthy way of dealing with failure and with pressure, which it seems like Bell didn't have. Uh, it seems like young, early on, some of that was tried to treat with alcohol and that didn't help the rage and then the way he had really the way he conducted himself in clubhouses and on the field and in the media and with fans like all of it just seems to be the kind of thing where he just didn't end up with a healthy relationship to any of these things and with the tools to deal with it and it's a shame because you wonder if honestly how many things that cost him he definitely has an argument for a couple MVP awards in there and you have to wonder how much of what pushed him a bit out of baseball outside of his hips was this antagonistic relationship. It's, he's a complicated figure. He's a complicated man. One of the best hitters for about a seven to eight year stretch in baseball. One of the most feared hitters of the 90s. And also just I, like it's hard to really celebrate that because of the way he, he conducted himself. I, it's it just is. It's a complicated legacy to deal with. I'm not sure what to do with it fully but let's take a break here because that's albert bell's career and that, that is albert bell that let's take a break and i'm gonna think for a minute and then when we come back let's talk about his mvp i'm sorry his, his all fame credentials and then we'll try to rank him on our list because that's what we we do here that's the whole reason we're here so uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back fads come and go and nowhere more than in the world of weight loss that's why Noom has created weight management programs that are made to last. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. And they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. So stop chasing health trends and join the millions who have lost weight with Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Welcome back. Okay, I think it's pretty clear. We can safely say for a solid stretch of the 90s, Bell's one of the best hitters in the league and was the offensive leader of one of the true offensive juggernauts of the era. We can also say he wasn't a Hall of Famer. His controversies and antics alone likely keep him out if uh, we're to consider the character clause, which, as I've said on many podcast episodes uh, before this one that I do, that matters to me. And while he ranks pretty highly amongst left fielders in a ton of offensive categories, 
He falls just shy of 400 home runs, wasn't considered uh, a great defender, and only accumulates 40.1 war across his career in large part because of that. But then you go to the other hand, a 295 career average with a 933 career OPS and a 144 career OPS plus is pretty impressive. It just unfortunately doesn't make up for the violence against fans. It doesn't allow us to ignore that he played at least the first four years of his prime with cork bats. And that he was charged with domestic battery. That he assaulted reporters. That that he kind of, I mean, basically tried to murder Fernando Vina for just being in the base path. There's there was. It's just uh, there's too much. It's too much. Literally, I think he went two years out of his twelve year career without having some kind of genuine controversy that was troubling. And you, when you add in that there are no MVPs, he was just a five time All Star. It seems like a simple no from me. While I can also acknowledge his genuine offensive brilliance and dominance in the 90s, it was for a short time, and there's too much on the other side of that scale. Now, moving on from there, though, what about our second question? The, the real true reason that we are likely here, and that's to rank Bell on our big list. Not just any list, but this is, you know, the list. Dun, dun, dun. Sorry. I have a theater degree for a reason. Anyways. We've already ranked 75, like, can you believe 75 players is what I have now ranked on this here list. And just before we dive into it, let's, let's actually refresh ourselves on the list here. So to go through the top 20, number one is Sadaharu O. Number two is Satchel Page. Number three is Ted Williams. Number four is Josh Gibson. Number five is Barry Bonds. Number six is Mickey Mantle. Number seven is Greg Maddox. Number eight is Mike Trout. Number nine is Ricky Henderson. Number 10 is Ken Griffey Jr. Number 11 is Ichiro. Number 12 is George Brett. Number 13 is Adrian Beltre. Number 14 is Shohei Otani. Number 15 is Clayton Kershaw. Number 16 is Edgar Martinez. Number 17 is Sandy Koufax. Number 18 is Tony Gwen. Number 19 is Hank Greenberg. And number 20 is Nolan Arenado. Now jumping down, uh, we'll skip down a little bit. Manny Machado is at number 25. Steve Carlton's at number 30. Jose Ramirez is number 35. Freddie Freeman is number 40. Corey Kluber is number 45. Number 50 is Kyle Hendricks. Number 55 is Whitey Ford. Number 60 is Tony Stone. Number 65 is Kenny Rogers. Number 70 is Aramis Ramirez. And number 75 is James Paxton. So where does Bell end up here? Where, where should we start? Like, let's pick a part to start. Let's start with, how about the man who beat him out for the MVP award, Mo Vaughn, at number 41. Now, they both played roughly the same amount of games with Bell, playing just 27 more games in their career, while Bell has Vaughn beaten virtually every single category, including war with 40.1 war to Vaughn's 27 war. He's gotten beaten hits, home runs, RBIs, runs, slugging, OPS, and OPS+. Plus. He's two more all-star appearances and four more silver sluggers. Well, for the record, both players were atrocious fielders. So they basically cancel each other out there. On the surface level, Bell was leaps and bounds ahead of Vaughn as a player. And, and he absolutely should have won that MVP ahead of him, as we talked about. If we're talking about just performance on the field. But I, we have to consider that all that baggage that comes with Bell, I, I think genuinely outweighs the difference between he and Vaughn's output. I, mean, I really think it does. Yes, Vaughn did have a run-in with a fan, if I remember correctly as well, but it was over something racially motivated, uh, just like Bell, but also I don't believe he also then beat him over the head with a, with a ping-pong paddle. 
So uh, they're not the same. They're just not the same thing. And Bell hits, hits a fan with a ball. He hits a reporter. He hits a photographer with a ball. He hits uh, multiple fans. He, he treated reporters poorly. He corked his bat. He's just going on and on and on. Then you get the Fernando Vina. You get the, the domestic violence, which of course matters a lot to me. You throw in that Vaughn was a massive voice for African-American rights in baseball in the 1990s and was a cultural leader in a lot of ways during that era. I, I think with that in mind, I think I keep Bell behind Vaughn. But also noted bad boy, Roberto Alomar, number 42. Despite one spitting on an umpire, Alomar didn't have nearly the issues Bell did. While accumulating nearly 27 more war than Bell, Alomar made the Hall of Fame uh, and won two World Series while finishing as a 12-time All-Star with 10 gold gloves and four silver sluggers. And, oh, for the record, while being a leadoff hitter basically his entire career, he still finished just 105 RBIs behind Bell and beats him in, in average with a career 300 mark. He also has him in OBP, stolen bases, doubles, triples, and runs. So I think, I think it's clear we can keep him behind Roberto as well. Now, if we start looking down the list, we get Oral Hershiser, Vita Blue, Corey Kluber, Kelly Jansen, Dizzy Dean, Jim Cat, and Jim Moyer, Jamie Moyer all of whom I have made positive Hall of Fame arguments for. Many of them won multiple awards, so I think they all stay ahead of Bell. So let's jump down to Sean Green at 52. Both players at high peaks that were cut short by major injuries. Bell had 40 war to Green's 34.7 mark. Green played in about 400 more games than Bell, but has about 50 home runs with just 80 more stolen bases, while Bell hasn't beaten average OBP, slugging, RBIs, OPS, and OPS Plus by wide margins, while garnering three more all-star appearances and four more silver sluggers to Green's one goal glove. Add in the 50-50 season and 90s dominance, and that just might be enough to outweigh his bad behavior. But for now, I'm going to keep Green ahead of him because I just can't get past all the trouble. I can't get past the cork bats, and I can't get past the domestic violence. Now... We then get to Ryan Braun and Moises Salou, who all have nearly identical numbers. They're almost mirror images of each other. And Salou doesn't have any real controversies to him. And Braun does have steroids controversy and lying about it and some of the things he said around that time period. So he still isn't as much trouble as Bell. And also, for the record, Ryan Braun shouldn't have won his MVP. Just like to keep saying that. But again, it's not on Bell's level, so I'll keep Braun in front of Bell. But now we get to Prince Fielder at 57. Okay, now... Bell has nearly double fielder's war and over 60-plus more home runs while leading fielder in every major category outside of OBP. And somehow fielder was an even worse fielder. You, could, you can't see me because I'm not on video, but I did a little eyebrow waggle when I said that. Then Bell and I feel, you throw all that in, and I think Bell probably goes right here. I feel like we, that punishes him enough for his, for his ill deeds. Yet keeps in mind how talented a hitter he was. Keeps in mind how dominant he was for a time period. I think this is probably the best spot for him. Considering, again, it's a player he finished ahead in most every statistical category. And was also a terrible fielder. So that all those things come in there. A fielder didn't get to have as big of a peak as Bell. I, I think this makes a ton of sense here. With that in mind, I think we slot Albert Bell in as the new number 57 on our list. Between Moises Salou and Prince Fielder. So that's, uh, that's Albert Bell, and we, we can let that settle in and see how we feel. I'd love feedback on that. It was an incredibly important player of my childhood, for better or for worse, going in both directions, obviously. There's a chunk to say that Albert Bell's in the large chunk of why I love baseball, and was the spearhead of the team that made me love baseball. 
So obviously, it was a, he's an important part to telling my story of baseball in a lot of ways. And so I don't want to just make it feel like it was all negative with Bell, but but most of it was in a lot of ways. And that's a tough legacy to reckon with. And I, I think this is the right spot for him. Um, and we can see how we feel about that. Let me know if you disagree or if you agree. But that's going to be our episode. You can reach me, Daniel Port, at Daniel J. Port on Twitter or X or whatever. And you can reach the podcast at LB Legacies over there as well. You can also email us at longballlegacies at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. If you think I'm being too hard on Bell, if you think I'm being too soft on him, whatever. Tell me what you think. Even if you have memories of Bell or things that you remember or things I missed, let me know. know I'll make sure to either correct it or talk about it. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I am I'm excited. I'm off to a plane here in a few hours to go to New York City for the weekend. I'm going over to see the U.S. Open over in tennis and maybe catch a baseball game or something while we're out there. Who knows? But in the meantime, everyone, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Enjoy your upcoming week. Catch some baseball. We're here on the home stretch of the season. Things are about to get exciting. Until then, thanks so much, folks. I will see you next episode, where I do actually think we might talk about Eddie Murray, because I think that'll be a fun one, or uh, unless someone else catches my imagination. We'll see. Until then, thanks so much, folks. Have a good one. Thank you.